You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Good morning, y'all. My name is Eric. I've been going to Hope for about seven years now. Uh, Please stand for today's reading. Our passage today is Judges 7, 1 through 8. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths with 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Eric. Y'all can be seated. And as you're seated, turn to someone next to you and ask them, do you have power? As we've seen time and time again, God is a God who has historically and repeatedly done What does not make sense to man or the world in order to show one thing very clearly, that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and he is God, and we are not. Whether it's God telling a people to go through a sea rather than around it, whether it's telling them to walk around a city blowing horns and trumpets and yelling instead of attacking the walls head on, Boy with slingshot versus giant with big sword, crippled left-handed man killing a king and then escaping down of a toilet. I will bring that up whenever I can. You get the picture that all the stories of God in scripture show us that God uses scenarios and God uses people who are absolutely unlikely and less than ideal for the job at hand so that he would get the glory and the credit and the praise that he is due. This has been the book of Judges as he's used heroes like Othniel and and Ehud and Shamgar. Shamgar, poor Shamgar. We didn't even cover him, but he's only got one verse. Just go read that verse and what you read is what you get. Um, He kills 600 people and it's pretty epic. Uh, You have Deborah and then you have someone like Gideon today. Unlikely heroes that God is using as vessels of his power to rally a people and go and defeat their enemies. And here in Judges chapter 7, we've come up to a point in Gideon's story where Gideon's done all of his battles 
staff Matt confirmation. He has all the affirmation that he needs. He's obeyed and he's torn down idols. Even if it was at night, he's done all of the prep work needed and has gotten all the confirmation from God to now go and fight the enemies and the Midianites and defeat them. And it's looking like this is just being set up for another crazy story where God does the impossible. It's Judges chapter, or it's Judges 7 verse 1 that Eric already read. But it says, Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The scene is being set and you have Gideon and his army. It's about 32,000 people are camped about five miles away from the Midianite army. And now we know that the Midianite army has already been said to number like the locusts. There are a lot of them. And they have as many camels as there are uh, grains of sand on the seashore. Uh, There's actually a lot of consensus in historians and commentators that the Midianite army ranged somewhere between 100,000 and 135,000 soldiers. So to any person just looking in on this story or to any person uh, like the Israelites or the Midianites who are in this actual scenario, the odds are already kind of impossible. It's already not looking great for the Israelites as there are only 32 or 32,000 ish going up against 135,000 soldiers. It's impossible to man, but God is looking at this situation and going, this is not quite obvious enough who actually has power. And so he comes to Gideon in verse two, he says, the people with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites in their hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. God is coming to Gideon saying, I want this to be a display of my power, not my people's power, but my power. And so I need to make the odds as impossible as possible so that it is more than obvious and evident who is worthy of all the glory and who holds all of the power. I think he's doing this for a lot of reasons, but one reason being that God is very aware of our human condition that oftentimes we misdirect the glory of God to other things. Misdirected glory is when the things that God has done or is doing for us and through us or around us to reveal himself so that he would get more praise and worship and honor are missed by us because we give ourselves the credit, we give other people credit, we give other principalities credit, or we just chalk it up to happy, wonderful, cosmic coincidences strung together to make something happen. And it's common, I think, in our American culture because we're trained to celebrate freedom and independence and self-reliance, not necessarily bad things, but what that has created in our faith is an independence from one another and then a a false self-sufficiency from God, thinking that we don't need him in every single aspect of our life and that he's not actually providing all things like James 1 says, so that when things go right or we get the promotion or we get over, we get over that fever or we wake up in the morning and we take a breath and we don't instantly die like Sam said, or we take a step and I'm not just floating off of this stage and there's something called gravity holding me down or donuts in the lobby actually taste good. It doesn't just taste like that food in the matrix that just is bland and like, oatmeal all the time, every time, all day, every day, that there are all of these things around us that God has provided and given to us for a very specific purpose. Yes, for our joy and enjoyment, but ultimately so that in those enjoyments, we would see him and give him the glory where glory is due. 
I think this actually happens most in our own transformation in the faith. We start to read our Bibles. We start to fast. We start to maybe even Sabbath. We're going to church every Sunday. We're maybe in a home group or a community group. We're getting involved. We're taking our faith seriously and change starts to happen. We start to get a little bit more mature. We start to become more steadfast. Sin actually starts to leave our life. We actually start to feel better and have more joy and peace and love in our life. But rather than saying, God, thank you for changing me, we go, man, look at what I am doing. We say, man, my Bible reading is really changing me. Or, or, or my prayers are really changing me. Or, or me coming to church, man, that is what is changing me. When all these things are, all of these spiritual disciplines and patterns and habits that we set up in life, they're essential and they're good. But all that they are, are channels for God's grace to come into our life and transform us. Nothing that we actually do changes us. All that we do gives space for the presence of God who does change to move into our life for us to be aware of him and for us to engage with him so that we can actually be transformed by the one who has all of the power. But if we're not careful to be aware of God's work in and through and around us, if we're not careful to build up an awareness of the presence of God in our life, then we will start to live thinking that it's by our power that we breathe. It's by our power that we change in our faith. It's by our power that we shared the gospel with someone and they came to the faith. From big to small, the glory revealed around us that is for our joy and for his glory is oftentimes misdirected. And so sometimes God has to do something so obvious so that no single person can take credit for what has been done. But all that we can say is that was God. And so he tells Gideon, this group is way too big. 32,000 people could just have everyone chalk it up to a coincidence or they could just chalk it up to their discipline and training. Man, they could just say they were just on another level. They drank something that morning. We don't know what it was, but they drank something that morning and it gave them some strength. Or they could just say the Midianite army were actually scared. So it really wasn't the, the Israelites or it wasn't even God that was doing anything. It was just that the Midianites were, were having an off day and a bad day. God says, there is still a chance that you might take credit for this when I'm the one who needs to get the glory. And so he says, I need you to get rid of some people. What I don't want us to miss this morning before we keep going on, as I realize we're really only in verse two, but that's okay, we will get through this together by the grace of God, is that God is not just dwindling down numbers here for the sake of quantity. God is not just looking for 300 is what eventually gets dwindled down to 300 people just for the sake of 300 people. God is the Hebrew word in this text when it says test or dwindle. God is actually refining a people to become a people who he could actually use to get the glory. Because the reality is that 300 people might still be able to take the credit. 300 people, if you're a specific kind of person, could leave a battle after beating 135,000 people and beat their chest and say, I did that. And so God here is refining these numbers now, not for, down, not for quantity purposes, but for quality purposes. God is looking for a specific kind of person to use and to choose as a vessel that displays his power so that he would ultimately get the glory and be magnified through it. And so he walks Gideon through this refining process. It's two things that God does and tells Gideon to do in order to refine, in order to dwindle the numbers down. And the first one is actually a very traditional command that commanders of the Israelite army would ask their soldiers before going into a battle. We see it in Deuteronomy where it's instituted. 
And it's where you would come to your soldiers. And it's what Gideon says here in, in verse 3. It says, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from the Mount of Gilead. Then 22,000 people returned. And 10,000 remained. Right off the bat, over a simple question, whoever is fearful and trembling, whoever is shaking in their boots and peeing down their leg, go home, we don't want you here. Kind of like that Clemson kicker a couple weeks ago. He should, anyways, that's besides the point. Now on the bright side, this kind of fear is contagious. If you have 22,000 people who are fearful and trembling and they just, that that can be cancerous to an army. That can become contagious and spread throughout and create panic and chaos. And so on one hand, it's a good thing that 22,000 people left. But on the other hand, 22,000 people is a lot of people. I'm sure that when Gideon, I I can't really even imagine how many people Gideon thought was going to leave over that question, but I can imagine that when 22,000 started to walk away when given the opportunity, Gideon started to get a little anxious in his gut. All of those assurances that he had in Judges 6 started to maybe feel a little bit less. He was probably thinking, should I get my bath mat back out to maybe get one more assurance from God? Because 22,000 people were scared and trembling, and so they left. I think it's important to note that I think that actually the 10,000 that stayed, it wasn't that they didn't feel fear in that moment. I actually think that they were probably somewhat fearful in this situation. Fear is an uncontrollable biological response to things that happen in our life. So something happens and we get scared, but there's an old adage that applies here. It's that everyone feels fear, but it's what you do with that fear that matters. Everyone feels fear. Everyone has that first little, oh my gosh, that's a lot of people. But then it's what you do with that fear that matters. Uh, one of our, Cassie's in my first house that we bought. There was this really bad thunderstorm. We had not been living in it for too long. And, uh, and so there was this massive thunderstorm. Uh, spoiler alert, it was just an acorn that hit our window, but it sounded like somebody had run up and smacked the living daylights out of our window. And I heard that. And I got scared. I'll, I'll be man enough and secure enough in my manhood to say, I got scared. Because like, oh my gosh, someone's trying to break into our house right now. But in that moment, I had two options. I could pretend like I was five years old and pull the covers over my head and go, it's not real, it's not real, it's not real, it's not real. Or I could just go grab my shotgun and do a quick walk around the house. And so I cleared that house like I was in a SWAT team, just rounding every, every corner, just like there was going to be something there. Because I'm a man, right? And that's what men are supposed to do. Grab the shotgun and, and a little pistol and a flashlight and, and my dog. Thank God my dog was McGarry, bless her heart. She's no longer with us, but she was a great guard. Actually, I'm pretty sure she was probably still asleep in her thing, but that's besides the point. I had two options. When we get scared, we have two options. We can either obey our fear. As Carl Jung says, we are obedient to what we are scared of. So we're dictated by whatever we are fearful of. Or I could still do what I know I'm supposed to do in spite of that fear. I think this was the 10,000. I'm fairly confident that, that a lot of them were probably still scared. It's not that they were, didn't have any fear. It's just that they were more concerned about the commands of God through Gideon than they were the massive army of Midianites. Sure, they had heard about the Midianites. Sure, they knew how many people there were. Sure, they had been enslaved to them and been driven and dictated by them for so long. But at the same time, they've heard stories about a God who opened up an ocean in two. 
They've heard stories about a God who opened up the earth and swallowed armies whole. They've heard stories about a God who led a people through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. They've heard stories of a God who provided manna from heaven. They've heard stories who uses unlikely people, God. Uh, they use, they, they've heard stories of a God who uses unlikely people in impossible situations in order to reveal himself. And so because of this, they are more concerned with that God than they are 135,000 Midianites. God is looking for a kind of person who will obey him in spite of their fear, in spite of their fear of how they'll be treated, in spite of their fear about how they'll be perceived, in spite of their fear about what they will lose and the dreams that they'll have to sacrifice and the the lives that they'll have to maybe live where they're not living for their wants, but they're living for God's commands. God calls us continually into situations that are going to spark fear in us. Whether it's sharing the gospel with a coworker that you know, man, if that does not go well, then it is going to create a very awkward tension for the next couple of years in this job. Or to, man, to, to go and confront a friend who's hurting themselves more than helping themselves, and you know it, and so you need to go and just be truthful with them. Or, or man, they're just call, maybe God's calling you to step out into a different city and a state that's away from family or, or into a job or a calling that you're just unsure about and have no idea if you really want to do. God calls us into things and into situations that, do, that will always, that oftentimes, spark fear in us. And when we feel that fear, we have two options. We can either obey his commands in spite of that fear, trusting him, or we can leave the battle and go back home being dictated by our feelings of fear. 22,000 people left. 22,000 people would rather go back to living an enslaved, mediocre life than to obey the commands of God because they fear this world and the men in it more than they do the God who is commanding them. How small is the God that we believe if we are more influenced to a decision to make a decision because of a coworker's approval or a popular kid's attention or the respect and opinion of a human, then we are concerned with the commands that God has given to us. God will not use those who are enslaved to their fear, who are driven by their feelings because they're not even showing up to the battle. Make it clear. Does God work through everything and everyone? Absolutely. God is always working for our good and for his glory, no matter whether it's a Christian or a non-Christian, no matter whether it's a, a good act of faith or a terrible act of sinfulness. God is redeeming all things and using all things. But we're talking about the context of Gideon. When he's choosing people to go out and fight on his behalf so that he could get the glory, he is looking not for a quantity of people to work through. He is looking for a quality of people that he can use for his glory. And he will use those who obey in spite of their fear. And so God uses and refines this army down 22,000 people because he would rather have 10,000 who obey in spite of their fear than 32,000 who are trembling in their boots. He's looking for those who have a high view of him and who understand who he is and what he can do. He's looking for those who trust in him more than they do fear their enemies. And by this one refining process, Gideon loses 22,000 people. For Gideon, losing 22,000, it's probably enough. He's looking at this going, oh, okay, 10,000 people. Wow, that is definitely less. And that is a little bit more than 10 to 1 odds. Okay, let's go fight this battle. I still feel at least a little bit confident. And then God comes to him and says in verse 4, hey, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test, refine them for you there. 
what God essentially tells Gideon is, go to the water, tell them to get a drink, and then put them into two categories. The ones who drink and lap water like dogs, put them off to one side. And then the ones who kind of kneel down and are, are drinking in such a way where they're still on guard and they're looking for maybe threats and dangers. Those who are maybe not just desperately thirsty, but who are cautious even in their thirst, put them in another category. So Gideon goes down there and he sees this. And I can imagine that Gideon sees 9,700 men starting to drink water like sane people who are on guard, consciously looking at other people. And he's going, okay, thank God there are only 300 people who are drinking water like psychopaths right now. That's awesome. That still leaves me with 9,700 people. I, I can work with 9,700 people. And then God says, wait, no, 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 Gideon, those weirdos are your army. Let's just add up the odds for a quick second. It, it, the weakest clan in Manasseh, it's Gideon's clan. These are the weakest people in in all of Israel. Judges 6.15 said that earlier. They've just gone from 32,000 to 300 men. It is now impossible odds. It's 0.00975% of a person for for, for 135,000 people. It's not a lot of people that are going to be able to fight against them. And if all of that wasn't bad enough, it's not just that it's 300 people. It's 300 people who drink water like dogs. That's psychotic. Who is getting on their hands and knees and just lapping, lapping? It's just lapping. Who's lapping water like a dog? Man, it's like one thing clear. God does not always use normal people. Ain't that the truth, Andrew? You're darn right. God is not looking for the ideal people. God's not always looking for the strong and capable and competent. God is looking for the weak These 300 signify and symbolize the weak, the weakest of the weak, those who are absolutely aware of their thirst and they're just trying to quench it like a toddler coming in from playing outside. Like they've just been in the Sahara Desert for 40 years and they're coming, they're just guzzling water. They don't care about how they look. They are just chugging water because they are thirsty. They symbolize the weak and this is who God uses for his kingdom to be vessels of his power is he uses those not who are strong, he uses the week. Charlie Date said something at a conference a couple weeks back that I was at that I've not been able to get out of my head. And he said that God will not use those he cannot bruise. God will not use those that he cannot use. God does not use strong people. Can he work through them? Absolutely. Because he's God. But when we're talking about the context of Gideon, who God is choosing an army to go and fight on his behalf, to be a vessel of his power that would display his glory, he is looking for a quality of people, not a quantity of people. And he will not use the strong because strong people don't need God. Strong people have it all together. Strong people are not desperate for God's power because they're content with their own power. Strong people are self-sufficient. Strong people can go at it alone. Strong people take the credit where credit is not due. God does not use strong people to be vessels of his power. Will he work through them? Absolutely. Will he display it still through them in spite of it? Absolutely. But in the context of the story, he is not using strong people. This is one of the biggest, if not the biggest qualifier in the kingdom of God, is that the people in the kingdom of God who are claiming to be followers of Jesus, sons and daughters of the father, have to be weak Some of the most significant words of Jesus are in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 through 11, where Jesus sets up this framework for the qualities of people 
who are blessed. Qualities of people that we should envy and emulate. These people that he lists represent the ideal life, the things that we should be striving for in the kingdom of God, the things that signify and defy and are markers that separate us from the world and place us in the kingdom of of God. Excuse me. Jesus says this. He says, blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are those who are humble and lowly. They've accepted the condition of their sin and they've understood their need of a savior. They understand that they are poor and contrite and broken and they need someone. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are who are those who are, are not just shoving down their feelings because they're trying to just have it all together, but who are okay with not being okay and are accepting and addressing their emotions and sadness. Blessed are the meek. Those who are not using their own strength for their own purposes, own kingdom, and own good, but they are using it for others' sake and for God's sake. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who accept their dependence on things outside of themselves, who recognize that they are not self-sufficient, ultimately because it's in our physiological nature that we hunger and we thirst. So if in our bodies we have need, in our spirits we have need, in our minds we have need, and they recognize that, blessed are the merciful, those who are not counting their own thoughts, their own opinions, their own emotions, greater than somebody else's so that they cannot have compassion on someone just because it's a different walk of life or because they've sinned differently or because they're struggling with something different than them. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who are not narcissistically biased. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who are willing to forgive in spite of not being able to forget because they are pursuing unity and something much deeper than anything of this world, and that is in Christ. Blessed are the persecuted, those who turn the other cheek. Blessed are the falsely accused, those who feel no need to defend themselves because all that matters is if they are right in God's eyes. These are the people that are living an ideal life. These are the people that Christ says that we should envy and strive to emulate. These are the signifiers in the kingdom of God of someone who is being used by God. And it is the opposite of the way of the world. The world would maybe be okay with a couple of these, but for the most part, the world would not be. The way of the world, the kingdom of the world, our flesh does not like this because we want to be strong. But God is telling us that we have to be weak. Because these are the kind of people that God uses. In this story, God is not going to use those that he knows would not give him the glory. God is not going to make them a vessel of his power if he knows that they would just use it for their own good or their own kingdom and not his. And so he takes a 32,000 person army and he refines it down looking for qualities of people. And that just leaves him with 300 people. 300 people are being used by God, not just so that it's evident, wow, 300 versus 135,000 people, but so that it's a kind of person who is going and fighting, a kind of person that God can use to get all of the glory, all of the praise, and all of the honor. God uses those who have courage, those who obey in spite of their fear, and he uses those who are weak, not strong. And so Gideon's left with 300 people. And Gideon know, or God knows Gideon well. We should know Gideon well. We've been in this series for eight, we've been in Gideon for like eight weeks now at this point. We should know him very well. We should know that he is someone who needs assurance in order to have a faith that actually lives differently. In order to have a faith that actually acts as if what God has told him to do and promised would happen if he does it will actually happen. And so God, in his grace and mercy, after refining these people and before the battle comes to him at night, 
and tries to give him one more piece of assurance. It's in verse nine. God comes and says, arise, go down against the camp for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pira, your servant. God is a God of grace in, in, in that he knows he's given him all of these assurances already. And yet he says, hey, if you are scared, I want you to go to the enemy camp five miles away. And I want you just to listen in on a conversation. So Gideon, and not even that, but he actually says, if you're, I know you're probably too scared to go by yourself. So go ahead and take a friend with you. Take Pira, your servant. And so they go and they hike up, they sneak up on these two soldiers who are scouts waiting for an enemy attack. And he hears them talking about a dream. And one of the soldiers is saying, yeah, I had this dream about where a, a thing of, of barley was rolling down a hill and it smashed into a tent and it flattened that tent. And it just sounds kind of like a weird random dream until the other soldier immediately interprets the dream confidently and replies, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all of the camp. Gideon just so happens to walk up on this conversation while they are talking about this specific dream. It's a five-mile hike to this camp. They could have been talking about this 30 minutes prior or 30 minutes later, but it's in this exact moment that Gideon comes up on this conversation and starts listening that the dream is being talked about. This is not just good story writing by Samuel for the sake of dramatic purposes. This is evidence of the providential hand of a loving God who is trying to assure his servant that the battle is won. Why would God go through all of this work in Judges 6 and even in Judges 7 now to give Gideon this kind of assurance? It's because in order for Gideon to ultimately be used by God as a vessel of his power, he has to have faith. Obeying in spite of fear is important. Being weak and not strong is important. But if you don't have faith that actually makes you act differently, that actually makes you live as if what God is saying is true, then it will not matter because you will not actually go. We can have all of the evidence in the world. We, God can give us all of those small whispers of assurance through pastors and through friends telling us something or, or through just, just, just something randomly lining up that day. We can have miracles in front of us. And yet we stum, somehow still have a tendency to chalk it up to coincidences or something else. I was thinking, I listened to a sermon by Paul David Tripp a couple of years ago that stuck with me. And he was talking about thinking of Jesus and the people that he does miracles to. And he asked this question. He said, have you ever thought about how many of those people don't end up in heaven? How many people that either God does a miracle to or witness a miracle right in front of their eyes still don't end up in heaven, their, their legs get healed, their leprosy is cured, they see a dead girl and a man come back to life, and yet they walk away unsaved. Why? Because it wasn't about experiencing a miracle, it's about having faith. So many people say, well, if God would just do this for me, then I would believe. But miracles, evidence, and assurances, none of that makes any difference in our life because somehow we still have this wonderful and horrible, innate, sinful ability to talk ourselves out of the miracles and evidences and assurances of God and sum it up to, well, it would have gotten better anyways. Or it just evolved into that way. Or, man, that was just a bunch of coincidences. This is a felt experience. We... we uh, on, on my way a couple months ago, Tatum was, Tatum was a terrible napper uh, early in her life. And by early, I mean like for the first eight months-ish of her life, she was just a terrible napper. And that makes you cry out to God a lot in desperation when you're not sleeping. 
And I remember I was, I had dropped her off at daycare. It had been a terrible day. I was driving to a vet with two dogs, my two Goldens in the back of our car. And um, I was just angry. It was like a culmination of holding all these things together and just trying, here will be done, God. All right, God, this is great. But that morning had been terrible. Tatum was scream crying because she was exhausted, but she wouldn't nap. And man, I'm, I'm reading scripture. It says, ask and you shall receive. And I'm going, God, I'm praying for a good nap. I'm praying for a good nap. I'm asking and not receiving. What's happening here? I remember on the drive, I just, I just got incredibly angry at God. And I just told him essentially, everything that's happened in my life that I've said is answered prayers could just be coincidences. I have no real evidence that you've ever been working in my life. Nothing obvious, God. Everything that has happened in my life could just be a bunch of cosmic coincidences. And we serve a God gracious enough that I didn't get struck with lightning right there in that car. At the same time, God wants us to bring that to him. Because at some point in our life, you and I are going to have to make a decision of faith in the midst of some kind of mystery that it is God, in fact, who is working. And it's not just our good strategy and planning. It's not just regimented discipline and building of habits. It wasn't just an emotional experience. It wasn't just a cosmic coincidence, but it was actually God stepping into our life and moving in our midst. At some point, we're going to have to make that decision because faith is not belief In the midst of all of the evidence, faith is belief in the midst of a mystery when it could just be a coincidence. But sometimes God does things so obvious to us that we cannot give credit to anything else. We cannot just sum it up to a bunch of coincidences. That day, later that day, as I was driving back from from the vet in the afternoon, I got a text from daycare saying, hey, she's been asleep for two and a half hours. Do you want me to wake her up? I was like, do not wake her up. Up until that point, she had never slept more than like an hour, probably. I'm pretty sure it was no longer than an hour. And in that day, that morning, when I had prayed that prayer to God and was just angry with him, that day she took two two two-hour naps. Now, you might be laughing saying, Nathan, come on. And I'm going, no. When I tell you I got that text, I started crying because it was just evidence that God is with me. It was evidence that God hears the most trivial of prayers about a guy who is just tired. It's evidence that God loves us enough that in spite of our words towards him, he will still in loving grace and mercy step into our life and make it obvious who holds all the power. Faith is acting on the assurances of God, even if there's still a mystery. And Gideon hears this dream and it's like a light clicks on for him. It's like all of a sudden, all these things that's happened up to this point just suddenly click in him. As soon, verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise for the Lord has given the Midianites into your hand. His moment of genuine faith produces a moment of genuine worship. It's not that he started to sing or that he started to praise God and dance and gave away his position. It's that in that moment, he started to give himself up. In that moment, he actually surrendered himself to the commands and the ways of God. And he ran back to the camp and he said, arise, let's go. This battle is won. Genuine faith produces genuine worship. 
And there are a lot of definitions for worship, but I, the, Paul gives one in Romans 12:1 that I think is most clear and most distinct. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In chapter 11, he's just gotten done talking about the mysteries of God and having faith in those beautiful and wonderful mysteries of God. And he says, therefore, because you have this faith in the mysteries of God, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship in Paul's words is when we give and present our whole bodies. The Greek word there is soma, our entire being, not just our body, our flesh, not just our body, our spirit, not just our body, our mind, but our entire being. And we present it to him as a living sacrifice to him that we are dedicating and offering our whole self to God to be used by God for the purposes of God. It reorients our whole life around one thing, and that is Christ. The idea that Paul is getting at here in Romans 12.1 is the idea of consecration, that worship, and to worship in this way is to consecrate ourselves in this way. And consecration is a word that I think we've maybe heard, and, and I think a lot of times gets a little muddied with another word, holiness, and, and those two oftentimes get confused and start to become synonymous So just to clearly define it very quickly, holiness is giving up what is bad in order to follow God. Holiness is simply giving up what is bad, whereas consecration is giving up what is distracting and unhelpful for the things of God. Holiness is different because holiness has been given to us, imparted onto us by Jesus through his sacrifice. You and I have been made holy, not by anything that we do, not by anything that we have done, but simply because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that when we believe in him, by the gift of grace, our salvation has the Father see us as we are in Christ and not as we are in ourselves. That's holiness. We are covered in God's holiness. We're covered in Jesus' holiness because he was holy. And because he is holy, you and I are now declared for all of time when we accept him and we're covered by his spirit as holy. But consecration is not something we're doing to be declared holy. That's something that's already been done for us. Consecration is simply our response to this radical work of Christ on the cross. Consecration is our worship to the finished work to say, because you have done it all, because you were the true and perfect judge that all of judges points to, because you are righteous and good, because your grace is sufficient for me, because you have made me holy as I am holy, I will worship you in this way because you alone are worthy of this kind of worship. You alone are worthy of this kind of devotion and dedication. You alone are worthy of this type of consecration of myself. Consecration is about giving up what is unhelpful and what draws our attention and devotion and allegiance and life away from him. And it's choosing to pursue the one thing. It's choosing to surrender to his words, his commands, his invitations. It's choosing to have him in every aspect of your life and not just in a compartmentalized box off to the side. And this worship is a natural product of a genuine faith. This is the kind of living that changes how we spend our time, how we spend our money, 
how we spend our thoughts. This is the kind of thinking that makes us wake up an hour and a half early or stay up an hour and a half later while our kids are asleep and we have a moment of peace and quiet to spend time in prayer or the word rather than on Netflix. This is the kind of living that will make us make seemingly unnecessary and drastic decisions to make a rule of life for your phone so that you're not on it and driven and dictated by dings and notifications or to make drastic decisions like deleting your social media for a little bit. It's the kind of living that resolves to live in a tension for the rest of your life as you actively try to pursue something that is flowing counter to the current of the world. It is is resolving to live in tension because you're choosing the one thing and not all of these other things. Ronald Rollheiser, he's a priest and a Christian philosopher, and he makes us aware of this reality. And he says that every decision that we make is full of 1,000 renunciations. Every single decision you make is full of thousands of renunciations. If I choose to go mow the lawn, I'm choosing to not do a thousand other things. If I'm choosing to read my Bible, I'm choosing to not go do a thousand other things. If I'm choosing to pursue him, I'm not choosing to pursue anything else. And so there is going to be this tension. And oftentimes this tension is the thing that scares us out of consecrating ourselves in this way. Because when we feel that tension in us, we start to think that something is wrong or that we're doing something wrong. And the reality is most often and could be that you're doing something right because now you are living counter to the current of the world. And you are now walking in the ways of Jesus, pursuing the things of Jesus. When we consecrate ourselves in this way, you're dedicating yourself to a life of FOMO. Fear of missing out because you are going to be missing out on something. It's a living sacrifice. Crucify your flesh. Pursue me. Follow me. Give up. Take up your cross and follow me. Become a living sacrifice. First Peter, be a walking monument. All of this language is to show us that you are deciding to live in tension for the rest of your life. Because you're deciding to choose and pursue the one thing and not any other thing. It's not that you'll live a life without joy or fun. It's not that you can't watch TV anymore. It's not that you can't be on your phone anymore. It's not that you're not allowed to laugh anymore in this life or anything like that. It's actually the opposite. Because when we consecrate ourselves in this kind of way, you actually find that your life and the mundane moments that used to just be trivial become more sweet, more fulfilling, And it's almost like all of a sudden there's a weightiness to every moment of our life. I'm a big fantasy nerd. So I read a Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. It's taken me a long, it's taking me a really long time. And I used to just read it for fun. But now when I'm reading it, I can't help but turn to God and say, thank you. Because there's an author who can create cultures and he has like 30 different languages that he's come up with and he's thought out that he stays consistent with. And there's a hundred main characters. And it's just going, thank you, God, that you've instilled some semblance of your semblance of your creation ability in us to be able to create stories like this. Or when I'm eating good food, if you really pause and think about it, you're going, God, thank you that you gave me taste buds who can taste different kinds of flavors, different essences of flavor, different textures, and that you made food actually taste good. When we're consecrating ourselves in this way, it adds a depth of joy. It adds a depth of peace. It adds a depth of purpose in our life that we don't have if we don't consecrate ourselves. Our lives will be sweeter, actually, because we'll be living our life with an understood awareness 
that everything you do in your day-to-day life, the creator of the universe is doing it with you. Every step you take, the creator of the universe is there with you. And what you are delighting in in your day-to-day life, the creator of the universe has intentionally made that for your joy and for his praise. So consecration is not just going into a cave, as I say, and putting on a burlap sack and a potato sack and just living that way in scratchy clothes, never smiling for the rest of your life. Consecrating yourself is sifting through every aspect of your day and asking, is what I'm doing helping me to encounter the presence of Jesus? And then if not, asking, how could I potentially encounter or invite his presence into this moment, into this hobby, into me watching football, into me going fishing, into me reading a book, into me spending time with family, into me playing with my daughter. How could I encounter his presence in this moment and in every moment? These are the type of people that God uses to be vessels of his power. God is not looking for a quantity of people to send out to do his kingdom work through. He's looking for a quality of people. He's looking for those who obey in spite of fear. He's looking for those who are weak and dependent, and he's looking for those who are devoted. Out of 32,000 people, after this refining process, he's left with 300 people. That's not a lot of people left after this two refining steps. If we take that percentage, it's 0.00975%, and we apply it to this congregation of roughly 800. That's seven and a half people. Seven and a half people, 300 out of 32,000. And I say this because not many are willing to choose the one thing and renunciate the other thousand things. Not many of us are willing to be devoted in this way. Not many of us are are, are willing to pursue these things and to renunciate everything else. But I I just want to encourage us that our our Christian culture has enough of the 31,700 people who believe in God and follow him until there's an army of 135,000 or who have faith until they have to give up what they've been relying on for their strength, love, joy, and peace. I just want to say in love, that faith, a faith that's rooted in fear, a faith that's unwilling to surrender control and a faith that is devoted to a hundred or a thousand different things is of no use in the kingdom of God because it has no power. It has no power. There is a power deficiency in our Christian culture today because few of us are willing to consecrate ourselves to Christ, seek God in such a way. We, we don't, we, we're not sinking God enough that would actually make us vessels of his power for his glory because consecration is crucifixion, but it's our calling. But friends, this is who God uses. God uses those who consecrate themselves and those who consecrate themselves will receive power. If you want this confirmed, just read 2 Corinthians. It's a book where Paul is trying to communicate to a people who have a power deficiency. Look, your power does not come from within. Your power comes from above. 
He says in 2 Corinthians 1.9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 4.7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 2 Corinthians 10.3-4, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Or 2 Corinthians 12.9, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Those who consecrate themselves in this way receive this kind of power because you are no longer dedicated to your own life. You're no longer pursuing your own will or building out your own kingdom. You're no longer walking by your own strength, but you are walking by the one who holds all power. The strength of this world and the power that it produces seems tempting, but at best, what our strength and power will produce is achievable results that are mediocre, profitable results that are fleeting, and measurable results that leave nothing to the imagination. To live by my my power is tempting because it allows me, and I'll use that word loosely, to keep control of my life while simultaneously sacrificing a life that is worth nothing and impacts nothing. But if we choose to live by his power, if we choose this morning to actually devote ourselves and make that decision every single time we wake up and step out of our beds every morning to live by his power. If we're surrendering ourselves to him, to him in such a way where we say, I am just a vessel. I'm just the donkey that you're gonna ride on. I'm just a man, a broken, downcast, unworthy person, not even worthy to carry your sandals. If I surrender myself to him completely and devote myself to the things of God and give up what is unhelpful and distracting, then what it will produce in my life because of his power is unimaginable, immeasurable, impossible moments that display him. Moments that actually move the presence of God into a situation. Moments that actually heal the sick. Moments that actually bring light to the darkness. Moments that actually make eternal, long-lasting change. Not just one or two day or one or two month or one or two years change, but eternal impact and change. This is one of, if not after following Christ and making that decision, the hardest and most constant decision you are going to have to make every single time you wake up, every single time you wanna choose something else, every single time you wanna try to have your foot in both worlds, every single time you just wanna go along with the current of the world, every single time you just wanna give in to your feelings of fear, your feelings of want, desire, and need, every single time you're gonna wanna do something else, you have a decision that you're gonna have to ask yourself, whose power am I gonna live and walk and love by today? Or maybe the better question is, what will I devote myself to today? This is the question for us this morning. What are you going to devote yourself to tomorrow? When you wake up on Monday morning, what becomes the most important thing? When you wake up on Tuesday morning, what becomes the thing that you're relying on for strength or assurance? When you wake up on Wednesday morning, What are you gonna be pursuing and chasing after? 
every single day we have to make a decision. What am I going to be devoted to? And based on the decision we make determines the kind of vessel we are of the power of God. Just for a moment, would you take a posture of of prayer? Bow your heads, close your eyes, whatever you need to do. Open up your hands. There's a passage in Joshua 7, 13. It's a very similar situation. It's impossible odds that they're faced against. They've been losing this battle and God comes to Joshua and he starts to give them instructions and explanations as to why all these things are happening and then how they can actually go out and win this battle. Joshua 7, 13, and just allow these words to be spoken over you today as they were written for a specific people that are now used by us for his glory. God comes and says, get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Father, we thank you that we are holy because you are holy. We thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. We thank you that in our weakness, you are made strong. We thank you that by your power, we can do all that you have called us to and we can do all beyond our imagination. Father, we thank you that we are righteous and pure and blameless because of your sacrifice, because of your son. Father, we thank you for these things that you have declared us to be so that we can have confidence and walk this life with assurance. And we thank you for moments like this where either we can come back to you and consecrate ourselves to you in this way, where we can have the encouragement to keep going against the current of this world or where we can be brought to an awareness of our need for something outside of ourselves and commit ourselves to you. Father, I pray for seven and a half people or eight if you want to round up. I pray for people who are willing to consecrate themselves in this way so that we would be vessels of your power for your glory in our workplaces, in our families, in our communities. I pray that you would create compassion in our hearts so that we actually care about seeing change in our city. We actually care about something outside of our own circle. We actually care for someone that we don't need to care about. I pray that you would instill in us a deep desire to see your presence move more into our life. I pray that this would not just be another moment that we let an opportunity pass by to make a decision and continue to make a decision to consecrate ourselves to you, to become living sacrifices. So Father, we give you all praise and all glory and all honor. We give all credit where credit is due because you and only you are creator, sustainer, provider, Savior, only you, Father. So we come to you now asking for strength. We come to you now devoting ourselves 
power to do what you have called us to do. It's your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week. 